Hi, this is Edwin Crozier of the Franklin Church of Christ in Franklin, Tennessee. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. The lesson you're about to hear is the second in a series of lessons presented to the Franklin Church of Christ in January of 2009 by Harold Comer. Brother Comer agreed to work with us as we strive to make 2009 our biggest year of growth ever. In this lesson, he provides some scriptural pictures of biblical evangelism, highlighting that we need to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Open your Bible and get ready to talk about scriptural pictures of church growth. There surely are great spiritual pictures to be found in the Psalms and in so many other places. There are pictures of who we ought to be and what we ought to become. There are pictures that are drawn from a world we have not seen, but a world that we will see. My purpose in the lesson this morning is the energizing, the stirring of the spirit of each of us. It really is a lesson that I have to preach to myself, to stir, to motivate. The object of all this, once that you're more energized and stirred, is to have a group of people who make more what I call noise. That seems to de-emphasize the role of inviting people and talking to people, but it just says that we don't make an awful lot of noise around us, that we are kind people, that we are good people, but there are a lot of things that are so critical and so important today that we need to understand that we couldn't do them, we can learn how to do them better. And so in reference to, to that about the spiritual pictures that are there, we start out as people of the book. Sometimes we don't see the book, and sometimes we don't follow it as we should. But understanding that we need to turn to God's Word for our strength and for our motivation. There really are a number of powerful, moving, biblical images that if I'll just stop and see them, will have a very immediate impact and will have the motivation we need. So this is snapshots of motivation from just a couple of passages of Scripture. One from 2 Corinthians in the 5th chapter, the other in the book of Jude. And you may follow along, uh, I'll be using the English Standard this morning. It's a new translation, much like the American Standard. It's very literal text, and uh, you will be able to compare it with the, the text that, that you use. In 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter, Beginning in verse 10, we have a series of very powerful pictures that we must understand. Just to read it to begin, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what's due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. You see where he's going with verse 10. Now, many Bibles will make a paragraph there. I don't think that there is a break in thought. I think that, therefore, ties with what he's been saying. And where he's going, 
is talking about his motivation. And when I understand Paul's motivation, then I can compare or consider my own motivation that's there. The first statement that we want to focus on is that we must all. It is a must passage. And it says that we must appear at the judgment seat. As much as I would like to skip that passage, and as much as when I find some of those passages in Scripture, I look at them briefly, and they're a little painful, and I pass on, we still must come back to see the image, because the passage is true, that we must all appear there. Now, when we have a passage like that, by every knee shall bow, I need to imagine what caused that and how it feels. When we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, we're not truthful to ourselves if we don't imagine the experience of what it's going to be like to be there with everyone and have to appear. First, it's going to be overwhelming. It's going to be so overwhelming that every knee will bow. It's going to be so convicting that every knee, that every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord. Now, to, to be in that situation is not a situation we, as a people, have been in very much. We don't have a king. We don't have this kind of action in our day and time. We have a few times that people might bow down and, and beg or something but even that is very, very rare. But it's a powerful picture of coming before the throne of God. We must appear before the judgment seat. Now, you need to see a courtroom. And you need to see a special mood. Judgment seats are made to be raised to make the point of power or authority. The judge is isolated from you. He is independent from you. There's just something about being in a courtroom. There is something coming before the judgment seat of Christ that it is overwhelming. So there's a message in the judgment seat. There's the message that Christ is there. And what we have in the picture is His greatness and power. And if you see a power that is so great, a power that was part of creating the vastness of the universe. A power in the Father, in the Spirit, and in Christ Himself that was so great that some distant star that is so much greater than all the power we have in our tiny part of the universe is nothing to compare. That just the power from the atoms that line up and cross your thumb is so great. The intelligence the, the, to design them and to keep them moving, to keep the power contained there, that if you just stop the atoms in your thumb from spinning around, there is such a release and such a generation to, of, of power. And to see Jesus Christ and to see his power is overwhelming. And you cannot stand. The motorcycle gang leader 
that is not going to bow down to anyone before the power of Christ will be totally humbled and fearful. And when I come before him, I need to have that awareness and that sense of reverence that will be there for everyone in the day of judgment. What's going to happen is that we're going to receive our due. That a judgment's going to be made, we'll give an account, and there are a few people that'll open the books and they'll say, well, uh, his name is here in the book of life, and over here in the books of record, there were a lot of sins, but the blood of Christ has erased them all. There are going to be a majority of people whose names are not found in the book of life and whose record, when it's open, is filled with every lie, with every deception, with every hatred, with every anger, with every sin, gross or minor, that they've committed. And to be there and to give an account for the things that you've done in the body will be an overwhelming sensation. If you're here this morning and your sins are not washed away, you need to see the picture. If you're here and your sins are washed away, there are thousands who do not have that blessing. And many of them are not going to be prospects and many of them are not going to listen. But scattered here and there, Throughout that great multitude, there are thousands that will listen and will respond. And so, when you say that each one they receive what is due, their decision about what is due is the Lord's, and He's already made it, and it's already clearly outlined in His Word about the forgiveness that He would have that's there. Therefore, Paul says in explaining himself, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. What kept Paul going? What makes him happy under Roman house arrest? That he's able to adjust and adapt. The prospect of a terrible death before Nero is there. What keeps him going? Because he knows something greater, knowing the reverence of the Lord. The respect for him, knowing his greatness and seeing it now, and knowing that a judgment is going to be a gracious and merciful judgment, or it's going to be a frightening and an overwhelming judgment. So, if I know more of these pictures, knowing the reverence of the Lord, he says, we persuade others. Persuade is difficult. You can tell someone, you can preach, you can correct or exhort. But to touch, to love, to talk heart to heart, to persuade them is a much greater action that's there. And what drove Paul to that degree of love and tenderness and kindness and directness and honest statement and powerful picture? It's because... He saw something that's going to happen to each and to every one of us. When a congregation knows more about eternity and thinks more about eternity, which doesn't happen much in our busy world, we become 
much more adept at our general touches, the words we say, the things that we talk about. Now, the last statement in this line of thought about Paul, when he talks about the rest of his motivation in verse 14, is for the love of Christ compels us. There is something that is so strong that forces you, compels you. And when you see the love of Christ for the lost souls, that he would endure every pain that you would go through in the crucifixion, the pains are so extreme. The, the cramps, the, the body calling for, for water, for liquid, the, the just fighting for one breath is so, so bad. The thing that disturbed Christ was enduring the shame of being bare naked, of the despised kind of shame that's there, becoming sin uh, to the Lord. And, and yet he stays on the cross. And there's an interesting motivation that's there. Who for the joy that was set before in Hebrews 12, verse 2, in that he endured the cross, despising the shame. There's a real positive motivation there that he looks at. And the joy that was said before was your salvation. Paying the price for you. Taking that long list of sins. And a list that you can't correct. And paying the price for erasing all of those. Who, for the, uh, uh, Paul says, for the love of Christ compels us. When you see Christ's love, and you see the need of souls around you, then you need to do something. So there is both the negative, the fear, the reverence, and the love that motivates Paul. Now, interesting enough, there is the same kind of combination of things will be found in the book of Jude, starting in verse 21. He starts out with the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. You stay in it. You love Him, you know He loves you. And when you keep yourself in the love of God, there is a powerful kind of result. You are waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. But first, by keep yourselves, there is the concept that you choose to think about the love, you, you know what it requires and what He wants, and you push yourself to see those pictures of love and care and concern. You wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. You see the love. You see the result. You see the mercy that's available. You see eternity in heaven and the great worship services that are there. You learn to have mercy on those who doubt. Here is a person who you're interested in and you care about, but, but he has fears, he has doubts. Do you just finally get mad at him and say, well, you just, you deserve it. Or, I wash my hands of you. Or do you have a patience that's there to have mercy on those who doubt and still pray about them and see what you can do? There is a, a motivation that's powerful there that stirs you 
save others by snatching them out of the fire. This is a part of, of the negative that, that's there. And it is a, a picture of urgency. Uh, recently in Birmingham, there was an older couple that was inside a burning house and they were frightened and did not come out. And there was just a lady, an older, not old, but a, a, I think a middle-aged lady that uh, realized that they were struck by fear and she went in past some of the burning area and brought the lady out. And the lady said her husband is inside. And so the lady went back and grabbed the, got the, the, the husband out. And then they were worried about the dog. And she even went back and brought the dog out. You see, there's an urgency that takes place when the burning is there. And if we see that same kind of picture of people nearing the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, of someone getting close to hell, and we are distressed about it so much that we have to rush to it and snatch them out of the fire, there is a powerful kind of imagery of saving people. But it goes back to seeing judgment, seeing eternity, and seeing hell. So, there is the negative of, of hell that's there. The others, you show mercy with fear. And that, that, again, the fear is the reverence, divine spiritual reverence. To have mercy on someone is to be sympathetic, to be caring, to be kind. There are other translations that translate this as compassion, but... It is both the negative and the positive, the love and the, the fear that, that Paul has, and both of them are here. The final motivation that's there is what you think about sin. Hating the garment that's stained by the flesh. Hating the fact that here is a neighbor that is carrying every stain of every sin that he's committed. His robes are no longer white. They're covered with his sin. They're covered with his harmful actions. And you are able to see that, but see it with mercy. You, you do not hate the sinner. You hate the condition that he is in. You have patience with him. You care about him. You have serious feelings about sin itself. So, if this is motivation... What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to do it? What are biblical pictures connected with that? Well, one key picture is in Revelation, the 22nd chapter. And this is one of the things that you should do. It is a commandment. And it is a commandment first that you need to understand and break down the Holy Spirit and the bride, the church, uh, are saying come. The come from the Holy Spirit, the come from Jesus Christ, come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden. The, the come from the Holy Spirit Himself and the come from the church at that time. Come is a simple kind of statement. 
it's kind, it's direct, it shows interest. It is not that preachy. And I said earlier that this kind of picture of the power of the word come comes from John. It doesn't come from Matthew or many of the other epistles. It's painted here. It's painted in the fourth chapter uh, of, uh, of John. And it's painted more in the first chapter of John. Now, why would John be the only one? Well, uh, John was principally writing very late. He has come to Ephesus. Ephesus is a very large city. It's the third largest city in the ancient world. Rome is first. Antioch, Assyria is second. It had been that uh, Alexandria in Egypt had been, but it, it has declined. There are even a number of Jews who have left Alexandria which had had a large Jewish population at one time, and have come to Ephesus. And it is a special kind of place and time of a large city at that time. Saying come, or doing a gentle touch, is important in urban situations. So, the spirit and the bride say come. You need in this, though, to see the prospects. Because the prospects are identified and you need to learn how to think about prospects. The statement says, and let the one who is thirsty come. But you see, there are a lot of people that are not thirsty. But here and there, there are people that are hurting, people that are thirsty. By my calculations, it's about one out of a hundred. And in that number... It says you got to cover 99 to reach that one. Occasionally I'll teach that somewhere and someone will go invite someone and lo and behold, he hits the prospect. And he comes in and said, oh, Brother Comer, it's a lot easier than you, you told me. And I'll sort of laugh and say, well, I tell you, that just means you got 200 to go to find the next one. Because the numbers are going to be pretty accurate. And it means that if you are too lazy to touch a hundred lives, you probably won't find the one who's thirsty. This shows that there is some responsibility on the part of the prospect. And let the one who is thirsty come. But your action is first. You say come. They have to respond. Let the one who desires. This says there has to be some desire within him. Satan has killed all the desire he can. Sinners have killed all the desire that they can. Many people have no desire, but there are those who do. And they are enough to run this church over in an exciting kind of way. So, you need to see the prospects. That you're, you're, you're not going to just pick out three people and convert them. They're it's a great amount of skill in developing somebody's desire and interest in developing their thirst. And it takes an awful lot to do that. The responsibility is to find someone from this passage who is already that way. So, you say come, let the one who hears say come. You need to see an occasion. If you say come... There has to be something you're inviting them to. It, the worship service is fine. 
if you're attentive to the the one who comes in and it is at the right level, it can be all sorts of of different activities that are there. You need to see yourself saying come. And let the one who hears say come. Now that puts you and I in that category. We've both heard, we've learned, we need to accept the responsibility of the hearer who knows. And to be ready to say something good about Bible classes, to say something good about reading through the Bible. We're, we're doing a reading program uh, through the Bible now. It's the third year that we, we've gone into that. We got such a bounce out of it the first year that there was just excitement all over. But there were some of our members just invited people to read through the Bible with them that year. And the, the number uh, uh, of response was great enough that, that it just energized our people. Let the one who hears say, come. You invite to something. A Bible class, inviting them just to read through the Bible. This year, we're reading through the New Testament. Uh, after we read through the Bible a couple of times, we are focusing more time on the New Testament, and we just started out. We're on the birth of Christ and the beginning of John the Baptist and all here in that that kind of class. You invite them to sermons. You invite them to special topics that are there. You can invite them to a, a well-done singing that is at the right level. We get the most visitors and the greatest response to a singing that we'll do in two or three weeks. We've only been doing it for three years. And we did it because they were introducing the instrument of music in some institutional churches around town. And we we talk about the, the, the arguments and, and answer those. But we also want to do something positive. And we want to do a really good singing to show what it does and its effect. And when we did that, we would we had whole rows of people from an institutional church. We had over 50 local prospect visitors. We had 400 people for the first one. And we're a congregation, even now, we're just up to, uh, I think, the 287 last Sunday. And so that, that kind of prospect visitors, taught us that there are a number of people who want to peek at us, but they're not quite ready to come to a sermon on their topic or what they need. But they want to see what's going on. They've heard a lot of negative things about us. But we had I had a number of people from denominational churches who told me that uh, I uh, have never been inside the Church of Christ. This is the first time I ever came. And the point was they wanted to look at who we were and what we were. The next year, we had 500 people in, in the singing. Last year, last January, we had 686. I don't know where we'll be this year, uh, but I know that in each year, we've had a great number of prospects. And when we track those visitors, when I go back and go through everybody that visited us, we ended up with a a family out of the first year, 
in the family out of the second year. But it takes a couple of years before they've looked at us enough and we've built a relationship enough that they can check us out and find out that we're not all the way that uh, that people have talked about it. But a singing is something you invite to. A small group discussion is something you can invite to. It can't run forever. It has to have special topics. It has to be designed to be at the right level. Your people have to be trained in the group about uh, how to react when someone comes. It can be just something to, hey, why don't you bring your Bible? Come, let's read a little bit. I know a friend I'll talk about tomorrow night that's got a, a lead of just uh, uh, that he gets somebody aware they don't know much Bible. He, he asked a couple questions for that. And he said, would you be interested in reading the Bible? It's surprising to people that visited the service that by the second visit were ready to say, well, yeah, I'd like to know more about it. So it can be a, a simple come about things that are there. One of the things that has to go with the come, though, is that we've got to be aware of some critical next steps that they're, that are there. That they are, are key issues of things that have to be addressed. Once you get your visitors, you do well. And you've worked at it, and I compliment you on paying attention to the visitor. The biblical picture that's there is in James, the second chapter, uh, verse 3, where a man comes in. Now, they're all excited about this guy coming in because he's rich and because he's dressed in fine apparel. And they say, you sit here in a good place. And that's the way every visitor ought to be treated. That's, it's not wrong to do that. It's wrong for that motivation. But it's the way every visitor is to be treated, and I appreciate your work on that, and I encourage that, that, that it continue. The neg- negatives, the poor welcome that's there, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. You, you can't read those any other way. You have to read the, the attitudes that are there in the words to, to say them properly. There are negatives that don't even have to have a word. It is the person that stares at uh, someone that sits down on the back row and just gives them the look, you know. And it is enough to take away two or three warm, friendly welcomes that are there. Be careful of the poor welcome. And understand that the back four rows are our welcoming committee. That that's where the visitor wants to sit. There's to be attention that's given to them. And if you don't do anything but just look them in the eye and smile real big, that that's a positive kind of thing and a positive kind of message. One of the things that you need to see in biblical pictures that are there is you need to see what we're expected to do, finally. And 
It's in the Great Commission. In Matthew, the 28th chapter, Jesus starts it with the sense of authority. That he has the right to tell you to do this. This is to the apostles. But I'll tell you, what he's talking about equally apply to what we're to do. And sometimes we make this too much. Go out as a paid preacher and preach somewhere elsewhere in the world. But it is a broad picture of the, the evangelism process. It starts with authority. And when Christ directs us to that place and to that purpose, then we must accept the, the seriousness of it. One of the pictures is the going that's there. And this is a participle in the Greek language. It, it really isn't an imperative. It is translated as a command. And it is a command, and that's a valid translation. But it, it is a series of four participles. Going is the first one. Uh, discipling is the next one. Baptizing is the third one. And teaching is the fourth one. Now, it's proper that each of those is a command. But in the going, you don't have to see going to Ethiopia. It's great, great work. And it, it's great to go. And it's great to go to Nicaragua or to go to South America. But that's not the total picture. When you go to your neighbor. When you've prayed about it and you've written down two or three things that you can say and you look for the right time and you just drop by and give him a card inviting him to some kind of event or occasion that you're going through. But there is a process that stops us and that is understanding that we've got to go to them. That we just say come, but we still got to go. The next part tells us something about what we're to do. The, the word is discipling in the, the simple in the Greek. It is a participle form, and it says that you're to be discipling people. A disciple is a learner. A disciple is a learner who not only wants to know what the master says, but is eager to jump to it and to do what the master says. And so, when you, you break that down about what you're to do, if you're to make disciples or you're to be discipling, there are two difficult processes that are there. And most of the things that I'm talking about <clears throat> will not encompass much of this concept of discipling. To disciple someone, the first thing is you arouse their interest in study. And then when you are discipling them to, to end up with a disciple, he's got to be ready to do it. So you've got to be able to teach him in such a way that you soften his heart, you make him eager to obey. This is a great skill. And this is a skill you want to see and set a target to be able to do that. But I'm not talking about that very much because it would be a, a, a long ladder to climb up, a lot of growth, to know how to ask the right question, 
how to stir their curiosity, how to be around them and develop their interest, how to get them gentle enough that when they know what it says, that they are impressed by Christ, they're humbled by their role, and they're ready to obey. That's what discipling is. And that's what goes on before the baptism. The, the baptizing is next. Baptizing you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is where the blood of Jesus Christ is applied. It's where the forgiveness is there. That when somebody really wants to learn and they're eager enough to know and humble enough to know that when I know what he said and I see it, I'm going to do it. I had a study not long ago with a young pharmacy student. And she didn't have much uh, background around the church. But she sat on the couch. And she'd agreed to look at a few verses of Scripture. And so I start out, uh, if you'll look at five verses of Scripture on baptism with me. And I just turn to the verse. And I say, in, in that passage, when did the salvation come? Before or after the baptism? And she read through uh, Mark 16, 15, and 16. And she said, well, in that passage, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. The salvation comes after the, the baptism. And then we went to Acts 2.38, and I said, and when did the remission of sins come? And she read, uh, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. The remission of sins shows the salvation. She said, well, it came after the baptism. And we did the same in uh, Acts 22.16 and in Romans 6. About the time we got to Romans 6, a tear came in her eye. And I wondered what was going on. But she answered the same, and then we ended up on 1 Peter 3.21. She said, oh, it came afterwards. And she said, I want to be baptized. That just reading the passages and, and looking at them, and that's a rare prospect. There was a lot of stuff that had gone on before it got to that point. But the the thing that interested me was the tear in her eye. And she was a great prospect and a great young Christian, and she was there regularly. After a few months, and I thought I could, she was relaxed enough I could debrief her. I said, you know, Tell me what you thought, and you ask questions about what they thought about the process and all. I said, tell me what was going through your mind when uh, that tear came in your eye. She said, well, said what I was thinking after that verse is I thought it made me so mad that I'd gone to church all those years, and nobody had ever shown me those verses. She was disciple. She was ready when she saw what God said, to do what God said. And it shows in every way.
I hope you were edified by this lesson. Most of all, I hope God was glorified. At the Franklin Church, we take God's directive to spread his gospel seriously, and we don't want to miss one single opportunity to get his word out. We hope you share this goal. If you have any questions about this lesson, any spiritual needs, or any prayer requests, please feel free to call us at 615-794-2359, or you may contact us through our website at franklinchurchofchrist.com. Also, if you're ever in the Middle Tennessee area, we would love to meet you face-to-face. We would love for you to attend one of our classes or assemblies. You can find directions and meeting times on our website. Again, that's franklinchurchofchrist.com. We look forward to meeting you. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.